You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. Well, in the spirit of Thanksgiving week, uh, let me just say how thankful Melissa and I are for you guys and for this church family. Um, We were just talking the other day about how most Christians just don't seem to value Christian community anymore um, and, and how we just, I don't know what we would do without, without our church family. So we're just so thankful for you guys. Um, you guys push us closer to Christ and inspire us to share, to share our faith more. Um, so thank you guys for, uh, for just being a wonderful church family. It's, it's just a wonderful blessing to, to serve you guys. Um, but even more than that, um, I want us to spend this morning thanking God for really the ultimate blessing um, that we, we were just singing about, but for sending His Son, Christ, to die for us, um, for sending our wonderful Savior, Jesus. Without Him, we would really be nothing, and we would be dead in our sins. Um, and so this passage in Philippians this morning, we're going to be in chapter 2 of Philippians, if you want to turn there. Uh, but it's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, and one that details Jesus' work for us um, on this earth and on the cross, um, and then the glory that he, uh, he, he alone is worthy of. So if you will, open with me to Philippians 2, and we're going to stand and read verses 5 through 11 together. So stand with me, if you will, when you get there. Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Yeah, I feel like we just all need to cheer after that. Yeah? Beautiful passage. I love this passage. You guys can be seated. Um, this is obviously a very well-known, uh, often quoted. It's one of those those that you might see posted in somebody's house on a coffee cup, um, somewhere like that. It's a very well-known uh, section of Scripture which displays essentially the gospel and it details all that Christ has done for us. And of course, we love to talk about all that Christ has done for us. Yes? We love to talk about that. We love to talk about all that Jesus has paid for us and His unbelievable love for us. But did you notice how this section starts? Verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in me. Let this mind be in the church. Um, he starts this. This is actually kind of uncomfortable because this is actually a command to us. He's saying, uh, "This is yeah, this is all that Christ has done for us. It's beautiful. But let this mind be in you, Lucas, and you, Gail, and you, Oren, and you, Josh. Let this mind be in you, church. That was also... In Christ. So what mind is he exactly is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the one that was in Christ Jesus, which he's about to describe in these verses. But he's also talking about the one that he's been describing in the past four verses, and that's what we discussed last week. Um, last week we talked about unity, and we answered three questions about unity. We answered, why should we seek unity? We answered, what are the characteristics of unity? 
in verse 2. And then we, we answered, how do we obtain or how do we maintain unity in verses 3 and 4. And in verses 3 and 4, the, the how, uh, Paul gives us three things that, that we must do as church, as a church, as individuals, um, if we want to maintain unity. He says, do nothing through selfishness or conceit. Do nothing through selfishness or conceit. Number two, he says, esteem others better than yourself. Esteem others better than yourself. Boy, that's hard. And he says, seek the interests of others. Not only your own interests, but the interests of others. That's the third thing here. And the underlying attitude that makes any of those three things possible is the attitude of absolute humility. That's the key word here is is humility. In fact, we kind of summed up unity last week by uh, making this statement. We said unity is only possible through humility that is focused solely on the purpose of proclaiming the gospel and informed by the example of Christ. And of course, that's where we're going to focus this morning is informed by the example of Christ. But unity is only possible through humility focused solely on the purpose of proclaiming the gospel and informed by the example of Christ. So it's having our minds so focused on our goal of making Christ known that we really don't have time for anything else. And that in that, we will make ourselves nothing. We'll humble ourselves, consider others above ourselves. And this is the mind that Paul is talking about here, the mind that he is, he is commanding us as the church to have. This is the mind of Christ and the mind that we're going to discuss in verses 5 through 11 as we continue today. Uh, So we've looked at the why and the what and the how of unity. So today we're going to look at the who, uh, the who of unity, the model that we should follow. Um, And Christ is the perfect model of the attitude necessary uh, for unity within the church. He's the perfect model of that. Um, and this passage really has two pretty distinct parts. Verses, in verses 5 through 8, we, we see the humiliation of Christ. So Christ humbling himself. We see the humiliation of Christ in verses 5 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 11, we see the exaltation of Christ. Um, so this is Christ being exalted um, above all things on this earth, in this universe, um, Christ getting all glory as absolute Lord, absolute sovereign over the whole, uh, all of creation. And so the humiliation of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. Um, So these verses, verses 5 through 11 here, are thought by many uh, scholars to be an early Christian hymn. Uh, There's not great evidence for that, but but, um, they're thought by many scholars to, to be an early Christian hymn or a Christian creed. So a creed is a formal statement of Christian beliefs. It's um, usually something that's very memorizable, easy to memorize, um, and that, that summed up a major uh, theological uh, doctrine, a major theological teaching. Um, so this is thought to maybe be one of those um, in the early Christian church. We don't know that for sure, but um, it kind of has that flavor. So we're going to talk about the humiliation of Christ first in verses 5 through 8. And he starts in verse 5, five and 6 uh, by saying, This mind should be in us as Christians, that is in Christ, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now I don't personally love the King James Version in this, in this particular passage because I don't understand it because I don't really think that way. I don't really think in that kind of English. Thought it, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Um, it sounds a little bit funny uh, to us. So some of your translations might say, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's really, to me, that really explains the meaning a whole lot, a whole lot more, um, especially us as in 2018 speaking English, because we don't, we don't talk like that. We don't use robbery really in that, in that way anymore. But in other words, even though he was in the very form of God, 
Jesus did not consider being God as something that he should grasp or something that he should cling to, something that he should clutch, something that he should uh, really just hold on to, hold tightly to the privileges that come with being God. And really, this is the first thing I want us to see about the model of Christ, um, is that Jesus gave up what was rightfully His. Jesus gave up what was rightfully His. Now, Jesus did not give up His deity. I'll explain that more um, in the coming moments. But, But Jesus gave up what was rightfully His, the privileges that were rightfully His. So the phrase being in the form of God, in verse 6, Um, In the Greek, it means the essence that he had always had. So the essence that he had always had. And that essence was the very nature of God. So Jesus, from eternity past, has always existed. Yes? Amen? Um, He's always existed and he has always been equal with God. He is God. Jesus is God. God, and He was God even when He took on human flesh. He was still God. He was in the very form of God. This is an essential aspect of the Christian faith. Um, It's also been the attack of many cults out there. So two of the more popular cults, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, do not believe Jesus is God. That's really their biggest downfall, is they don't believe Jesus was God. They don't believe Jesus is God. But if Jesus is not God, then we are still dead in our sins. Yes? If Jesus is not God, we are still dead in our sins, and really what we believe is futile. Because no finite man could ever bear the weight of all of the sin for all of eternity. One man in one moment of time. This had to be an eternal, non-created being. And his name is Jesus. No man could ever fulfill um, that role. And it takes someone that is fully God to stand in the presence of God the Father and be a mediator between God and man. See, man can't stand in God's presence. We're all born into sin. We can't stand in God's presence, but Jesus could because he is God. 100% God, 100% man. Kind of hard to understand, yeah? We don't understand that fully in our finite minds. Um, And we we can't understand that fully, honestly. This is one of those things in Scripture. It's called the incarnation of Christ. So the incarnation, that's your theological term for it. Um, But it's God taking on uh, flesh. God becoming man. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus becoming man, becoming human flesh. Um, The incarnation. We can't understand it completely. But Jesus was 100% God, 100% of the time. And he was also 100% man, 100% of the time. There's two, two natures there. that we don't, we don't quite understand how that all works perfectly. But we know that the Bible confirms it is true. We know that it is true. So there's four chapters... Um, Four chapters that defend the deity of Christ that are really easy to remember. So write these down. John chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. They all have something in common. What is that? They're all the first chapter. Yes. Heath is on today. He's on. They're all chapter 1s, right? So they're easy. These are not the only passage in the Bible that Confirm the deity of Christ, by the way. They're not, um, much of why we know Jesus is God is because of what Jesus himself said. So, one of my, um, one of my favorite biblical scholars, um, he said, um, and he died just recently, but he said that when we fail to get the point, the Pharisees always come to our rescue. So, let me explain that. Every time that Jesus made these big statements, and we're like, what, what's the big deal there? And the Pharisees are like, kill him! 
Blasphemy! Well, Jesus is claiming to be God. That's what he's doing there. Jesus, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is claiming to be God. And we may not get that if we don't know our Bibles, but the Jews got that. They know that, that, that that's exactly what God the Father said to Moses. Jesus is claiming to be God. No, 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 no. We can't accept that. There are other example, examples of this throughout, um, throughout Scripture, but every time the Pharisees get really ticked off, Jesus is just proclaimed to be God. Jesus used the title um, in one passage, calls himself the Son of Man. And what he says is not that, you know, we're like, okay, what's the big deal, Pharisees? The Pharisees get ticked, they're, they're blasphemy, because they know that Scripture in Daniel. Uh, where th- that's the only place that Jesus, that, that the Messiah is called the Son of Man, that scripture in, in Daniel, which we just got done studying. And they knew that Jesus, again, was claiming to be God. Guys, Jesus is God. Amen? 100%. He's 100% God. Colossians 1, verse 15 says, He is the image or the exact replica of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. It doesn't get much more clear than that. Yeah. Colossians 1.19 says, It pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. All the fullness of God, God dwelled in Jesus. Sounds, sounds like Jesus is God, yeah. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says, God has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. So Jesus is Creator, God. Yes? Jesus is Creator, we learn there. He goes on, He says, who being the, very, the, the brightness of His glory. So He's the brightness of, of the Father's glory and the express image of His person. He is the image of God's person. He is God. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. This is still Hebrews chapter 1. Everything that holds together is because of Jesus. He upholds all things by his word. That sounds like God to me. I'll finish the verse. It says, when he, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verse two, verses 2 and 3 there. But we learn lots, lots about Jesus' deity from, from just those verses. Jesus is God, which means He deserves all honor and all praise all the time. If Jesus is God, He deserves everything. He created all things, and all things are His. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Not only are all things His, but all glory is due to Jesus. That's what He deserves, yes? That's what Jesus deserves. He deserves everything. All praise is due to Him. However, verse 6 says, He didn't consider any of this something to clutch. Wow. He didn't consider all that praise and honor and glory something to hold really tightly to. And He was God. He is God. Verse 7 says, He made Himself of no reputation. Yours might say, He emptied Himself. There are some that say, Jesus ceased to be God willingly of His own choosing during his earthly ministry he ceased to be God this is not true at any given moment of Christ's ministry he was still all of those things omniscient omnipotent omnipresent he was all these things he was all powerful he was worthy of all praise 
during his whole earthly ministry. If at any time, if at any moment in time during his earthly ministry, because of rejection or because of temptation, at any time he could have decided, um, I'm done. I'm stopping this. I'm going to stop the beating. I'm going to stop the temptation. I'm God. I deserve more than this. Yet he chose to give up the praise and the honor and the glory and the riches that were rightfully his, that are rightfully his. Christ says, follow that example. Paul says, follow that example. Follow that example of Christ. How many times in a conflict do we use the excuse, I don't deserve that. You ever said that? I I don't deserve to be treated like that. Or look to Jesus. Or, um, you know, I have a right to be mad. Anybody ever feel like they have a right to be mad? I have a right to be mad, and I'm going to be mad. They can come apologize to me. Okay? Doesn't sound like anybody. Sounds like myself sometimes. have to admit. Meanwhile, Christ's example screams, give up your rights. Give up what you deserve. Maybe you don't deserve to be treated like that. Who cares? For the sake of the gospel, you give up your rights. Boy, that hits us in the face, doesn't it? Yikes. Jesus, come on, give us a break. We're not 100% God. We're not you, man. Man, I mean, Lord. (laughs) We're not you, Lord. How are we supposed to... Well, Jesus gave up his rights. He did not give up his deity. Don't be, uh, don't let me confuse you here. Um, he was always God, but he chose not to, not to portray some of his powers at times. I mean, if you're on the cross suffering, you see the people, you know that your mission is dying for the very people in front of you gambling for your clothes and making fun of you. I'm calling down some angels, guys. At that moment, it's about me. Jesus said, you know what? It's not about me. It's not about what I deserve. It's not about my rights. I'm going to empty myself. It's a tough one for us. The other thing we see modeled by Jesus from verses 5 and 8 is that Jesus went as far as necessary for reconciliation. He went as far as necessary for reconciliation. Not as far as was comfortable. Jesus went as far as necessary. Verse 7 says, uh, Jesus took on the form of a bondservant. That term refers to the lowest on the social ladder. It's the exact opposite of what he, as creator God, deserved. Yeah? It's the exact opposite of what he deserved. Being a bondservant? Remember, Jesus was born to a lowly family. Mary and Joseph. He was born in a lowly place. He was born in the stable. He was born in a place where, they, you know, there's no room for you. There's no room in the inn here. But I've got the stable here. You can have your baby there. That's where Jesus entered the world. He lowered himself big time from the very beginning. He was the son of a carpenter, and he was a carpenter himself. Pretty you know, lowly trade. 
not high class. He wasn't dwelling among the kings and the queens. He, he, he dwelt among the lower class of society. Matthew 20 verse 28 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus, God, the second part of the Trinity, Jesus, He came not to be served, but to serve. And of course His death was the ultimate form of humility and service, but this was also just the pattern of Jesus' life. Remember in John 13 how Jesus washed the dirty feet of His disciples. Can you imagine how dirty those feet were? Now just think about your feet. Like, Let's talk about feet for a few minutes. Let's talk about feet. After a long day's work, you know, Sarah Grace at the hospital, you know, you're nursing all, you're being a nurse for 12 hours, you know, you come home, I mean, I'm not saying Sarah Grace's feet, but, but just, there's, there's some wear and there's some tear on those feet, right? Like there's going to be, after a long day at the office, your feet are kind of gross. If your feet aren't gross... You're not human. They're a little bit gross. Some of them are a lot of bit gross. Just There's only levels of grossness when it comes to feet, yes? Only levels of grossness. Well, Jesus, I mean, consider walking on these dirt roads all day in sandals or maybe bare feet. Oh, Wow. Think of the smell. Yet Jesus, what he lowers himself. He goes as low as it, as it takes to serve these guys. I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to put myself lower. It's really just that act in itself is pretty amazing, honestly. He lowered himself and exalted others, just as Paul just told us to do. This verse in Philippians goes on to say that he became, he came in the likeness of men. And so that's not only to say that he looked like a man. He did look like a man, right? Um, men who saw him knew him only as a man. He looked like a man. That's why when he went back to to uh, his own people in Nazareth, they were like, isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? Isn't that the son of the carpenter? Like, he's not God. They just knew him as a human. They just saw a man. He looked like a man. That's why they rejected his deity. Just one of us. But he was 100% man, 100% God, as we've already discussed. So Jesus looked like a man, but he also experienced all the weight of being man. Post-fall man. So he experienced hunger and thirst. I think sometimes we have this idea that Jesus, just when he was hungry, he would just snap his fingers or something, and he wasn't hungry anymore. That was not the case. He would not be 100% man if that was the case. If he was hungry, he had to eat. Or he would get weak just as we would get weak. He would get thirsty. He would get tired. You know, after a long day of work and you're tired and grouchy? Well, Jesus got tired too. Probably didn't get grouchy. But he, he did get tired. And he, he was tempted with that grouchiness, right? You know how you're tempted just be rude to people because I've had a long day. Maybe I'm just talking about myself today. Um, 
He got tired. He got weary. He experienced pain. You think Jesus never, like, hit his thumb with, with, a, with a hammer or whatever version of a hammer they had back then? I bet he did. He didn't react in the way we sometimes react. No, but he felt it. Man, he felt it. He felt that pain. He felt everything that we feel. He experienced loss of people that he loved. He experienced great suffering. And he, he experienced temptation, yet he never sinned. Jesus was tempted, right? But he never sinned. He could have come only as a man in appearance, but not but have you know withdrawn himself from experiencing any of that bad stuff. He could have done that. He could have lived amongst uh, kings and queens, had the best of society, but he didn't do that. See, he had to be fully human to represent humans to God, God the Father. He had to be fully human. He had to experience hurt like we experience hurt and temptation like we experience temptation so that he could identify with every aspect of humanity. He identifies with us perfectly. That's a low state for him to fall from. Fall to. I mean, think God, this is Jesus. He has been praised for all of eternity past in heaven. All of creation is created for him. And now he's man. He's experienced, he is experiencing pain and suffering and hurt. But he went even lower. It says he humbled himself even to the point of death. It wasn't enough for him to become man, and it wasn't enough for him to take the form of a bondservant. To lower himself that far, he had to go even lower. See, Jesus knew that if reconciliation between God the Father and man were going to happen, there had to be a sacrifice. And he had to be that sacrifice. Only he could be the sacrifice. Only he is 100% God, 100% man. Only he lived a perfectly righteous life and followed the law of God to a T. Only Jesus could have been the sacrifice. So he sacrificed. And he died. It was the only way. He went as far as was necessary. That wasn't comfortable. But it was necessary in order that we could be reconciled to God. He had to experience being alienated from His Father. Jesus had been in perfect unity with His Father for all of eternity past. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in perfect unity. That's all. That's all. For all of eternity past. But that moment on the cross, He felt forsaken by His Father. Can you imagine what that moment must have been like for Jesus? I don't, I don't think we can imagine. I think we'll know someday, maybe when we get into heaven, when we have that kind of unity. But it's hard for us even to imagine that moment, what that moment must have been like for Jesus. To have God the Father turn His face away. He went as low as it took. And then He went even lower the verse goes on to say, even the death of the cross. The cross was the worst form of murder that humans could come up with. Like when the, originally the Persians 
uh, crucified people. And, and when they were coming up, you know, it's, it was just the worst form of torture we can imagine. That's the death that Jesus took. The Romans beat Jesus. They spat in his face. They, they beat him so bad that he couldn't carry his cross. They beat him so bad that you couldn't recognize him as human. They marred his face so bad. Then they put nails through his hands. And they put nails through his feet. And you know, they did all of this in such a way to where you could still lift your body enough to catch the next breath. You could still lift your body so it was going to be a slow Painful death. The death of the cross. It was brutal. Jesus took the cross willingly because He went as far as necessary to achieve reconciliation between God and man. And God required a bloody sacrifice for sin. had to be a perfect sacrifice. It had to be a bloody sacrifice. Jesus went as far as necessary, but that that seldom describes us in the church. As far as necessary, most of the time we just will not be inconvenienced at all to resolve some conflict or to show the love of Christ to someone. If we will be inconvenienced, it won't be for someone we already don't just love a lot. It's not going to be for someone we don't like. And we're not going very far at all for them. And even if you could get that far, we're just going to sacrifice a little bit. I'm just going to lower myself a little bit, and if they don't appreciate it, then forget them. I'm going to do this, and if they don't appreciate it, we're done. I'll lower myself a little, but I'm not, uh, I'm not going as far as necessary. They're going to have to come back. Uh, they're going to have to show me something. Not Jesus. Not how he thought. We rarely would go as far as necessary for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of unity within the church, for the sake of displaying Christ's love Humility says, I'll go as far as I need to go. I'll lower myself, and then I'll lower myself again if I need to, and then I'll lower myself again if I need to. That's Jesus. That's the mind that he says, this needs to be in you, church. It's crazy, it's radical, but it's what God requires of you, church. You won't please Him otherwise. And just giving a little bit, just sacrificing a little bit and hoping they come the, the, next, the next step. That's not biblical. We'll go as far as necessary to be unified. Sometimes unity comes at a high price. Well, thankfully, the passage doesn't leave us there with Christ dead on the cross. Um, it continues with the exaltation of Christ. And so um, it says, therefore, in verse, in verse 9 there, therefore, he says, because of this mindset, because of the mindset that Christ had that led him to accomplish what God required, because of that, God has highly exalted Christ. How did he highly exalt Christ? Well, first of all, he raised him from the dead. Right? Amen? We ought to get excited about that one. He raised him from the dead. Um, That means everything Jesus said is true. Yeah? God the Father is putting his stamp of approval on Jesus, everything that Jesus stood for and said. 
because he raised him from the dead. He's highly exalted him. Uh, Forty days later, after having appeared in his resurrected body to over 500 witnesses, he ascended on the clouds back to heaven. And now he's seated back on his throne at the right side of the Father. And you know, the Bible says he lives to make intercession for us. Wow. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He's making intercession for sinners. What love Christ has for us. He didn't even stop on the cross. He lives to make intercession for us. But he's been restored to that perfect, you know, he, for a moment on the cross. He didn't have that perfect same relationship that he had with God the Father because he was sin. But he's been restored to that perfect face-to-face fellowship once again with God the Father. And <clears throat> this was the mission. You know, th- this was that, that mission that he had in mind the whole time. That the glory of Christ. The glory that would be restored to him. That was what kept Jesus Moving. In the same way. That is what should motivate us. The glory of Christ. That's why I can lower myself. Because my mission is more important than anything else I've got going on. Than any other conflict. My mission matters. My mission of making Christ known to the nation is the most important thing. That, that's exactly Jesus' mission. Turn with me really quick to Hebrews chapter 12. I love this passage. Hebrews chapter 12. Um, let's look at just verse 1 here. We'll read the first uh, two or three verses here. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, talking about the previous chapter, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Listen to this. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame, the shame that was, that was given to Jesus on this earth, the disgrace. Well, he set that aside. The times he was wronged, and he was wronged from the moment he stepped foot on this planet. He despised that. He put, he put, it, he, he put it aside, and he looked at the joy that was set before him. And that joy was being restored to his father again. And that joy was this time, he would be able to look at his father and he would be able to declare sinners righteous. And say, it is finished, Father. I've paid for their sin. Now they can be in this perfect fellowship with us. You see, that was Jesus' laser focus. In the same way, it must be ours. That's the only way to have unity. It's to make something else more important than your conflict. The verses here in Philippians go on to say that God has given him a name above every name. And that name's not Jesus. That name is Lord. Let's read those verses again. Verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's been given the name Lord. Lord means absolute sovereign. He is the master. He is the supreme authority. All will acknowledge Him as Lord. Everyone on earth, everyone in heaven, Everyone under the earth. That means even Satan, even the demons will acknowledge him as Lord. 
The only question for us then is when will you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord? And you know, looking around, I, I, I believe that most of us here have, have, have made that declaration that Jesus is Lord of our lives. But if it's not, it will be too late on that day. It will be too late to say Jesus is Lord. You're going to say it, but it's going to be too late to put your faith and your trust in Him. We're going to move into this time of invitation. And I, want to, um, I want to ask you to bow your heads and, and uh, close your eyes. And I'm going to ask uh, Megan and, and Ben if they'll come back up and, and um, play a little bit for us. If the Spirit is calling you this morning and you say, you know what, Jesus is not Lord of my life, but I want Him to be. He has sacrificed everything for me. How could could I not make Him Lord of my life? If that's you this morning, you say, I want to be saved. Well, I would like to lead you in, in a prayer this morning, just kind of putting things into words. But here's the gist of it. It's repent of sins. That means turn away, confess your sins and turn away from them and put your trust in the Savior. That's Jesus. Put your complete trust in Jesus and His work on the cross and His resurrection and everything that He says. If that's you this morning, um, you know, nobody's looking around. I want to ask if that's you this morning. Say, I want to be saved. Uh, would you just do me a favor and slip your hand up so I can kind of help you put that into words? I don't see any hands this morning. Um, you know, hopefully that means that we're all Christians, that Jesus is Lord of our lives, or at least we say He is, right? But ask that question this morning. Is He really? Is He, is he absolute Lord of my life? Is He my master my sovereign man. I just live to hear what Jesus says so that I can do those things. Is that you this morning or maybe there's some work to be done before we partake in this communion. Maybe there needs to be some repentance this morning. You say, Lord, that's not me today. And I'm sorry. I want to reestablish you as Lord of my life. And the wonderful thing is, you know, like a loving father, Jesus is right there saying, Come on, son. Come on, daughter. It's okay. Yeah, you've been in sin. Let's move on. Let's move on. I'm ready to use you now. If you'll just confess that sin, just repent. Let me ask a couple of questions um, to think about as we move into this time. Um, The first one is, am I willing to let go of what I deserve for the sake of unity? Am I willing to let go of what I deserve or what I think I deserve? Jesus was. The second one is, is there there a limit to how far I will go to achieve unity or to show Christ's love? Is there a limit to how far I will go? The Holy Spirit, riding through Paul, has really laid out beautifully the road to unity within the church. But it comes at a great cost, and that cost is yourself, myself. Am I willing to esteem others as more important than myself? All these things I want us to think about as we uh, move into this time of communion um, so how we're going to do this is, uh, if, you're, if you're praying, you continue right there to, and pray. Um, but how we're going to do this is, is they're going to sing a song, and, and just during this song, that whenever you feel ready, um, go back, and, and the communion's right outside the double doors there, and, and, and go ahead and partake. But I want to go ahead and read um, a passage in, in 1 Corinthians 11. And I'm not going to read this part, but uh, 
the Bible does say to examine yourselves. Examine yourself before you partake in, in, in communion. Um, if there's any sin that you're just holding on to, don't partake this morning. Um, if you're not a Christian this morning, don't, don't partake. Um, the Bible says in doing so, we're, we're drinking judgment unto ourselves. And we're despising the Lord's sacrifice. So um, we want to be able to do this with, with a clear conscience before God. So I want to ask you to spend this time and just ask God, Lord, will you, will you just open my eyes to my sin? Will you forgive me of my uncleanness? Will you forgive me of my sin? Forgive me of my disobedience? Um, I'm going to read this and then I'm going to um, I'm going to kind of turn it over here, but First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. <clears throat> and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. I'm going to pray for us really quick, and then I'm going to turn it over. Father, we're so thankful for Jesus this morning for his perfect sacrifice Lord and not only sacrifice but his model for us teaching us how to be humble truly and Lord as a body we just we confess that we're we're not perfect Lord that we sin we ask you to forgive us Father Forgive us for any ounce of disunity in this body or any ill feelings we have towards each other. Father, and just forgive us for individuals, just for us just sinning, Lord, just disobeying your word at times. Father, will you forgive us? Lord, we're so, we're so thankful for Christ's sacrifice. We're so thankful that you became our sin on that cross and that you satisfied the wrath of God. Lord, we love you so much, and I pray that during this time um, you would just speak to hearts, Father. Draw us to repentance. Draw us to reconciliation with you, Father. If there's one person that doesn't know you in a personal relationship, please don't let them leave comfortable. Please bring them to yourself. Please save them, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name.